Good morning. The killing of Ashling Murphy in Tullamore at four o'clock on Wednesday afternoon has shaken a community to its core. And that shock has reverberated across the country. She was a daughter and a sister. She worked as a primary school teacher and was an accomplished musician and a camogie player, living a full and vibrant life. She was 23 years old. On Thursday's News at One, Brian spoke to James Hogan, principal of Durrow National School, where Ashling Murphy taught first class. Ashling began teaching here in Durrow in March 2021 and, you know, I know her both on a professional level as principal but as a personal level as well because she was a highly rated, talented, um, traditional Irish musician and, and we have great connections. But during her time here, we found, like, Ashling was just a shining light to the kids and a very professional and talented young teacher. As I said, it, it's just heartbreaking. We're, we're trying to comprehend with it. Um, we're, we're a very close community here in Doro and the staff, uh, we met early this morning. We had a briefing and we had tears. There was waves of tears from everyone and Ashley was a family member to us. It's very, very hard to think that she was here in school yesterday as a teacher and teaching her first class students who they adored her. We're going to be so, so devastated to lose such a colleague, a friend, a, a bright light that just would put a smile on anyone's face. We are just really thinking of the family and her extended family and friends during this sad time. Ashling Murphy was a keen camogie player and on Friday's Morning Ireland, Gavin Jennings in Tullamore spoke to Donal Rigney, senior manager at the Cormac Kalaki GAA Club. Ashling was a key active member of our club from an early age. From her time she was in national school right the way through until she played senior with our club up until last year. Um, anything that Ashley never done was done at 100%. There was never a doubt or a query whether she would perform or not perform. She would always be there. She would back every player on the field. She would always back the club and she would always be one of our most dedicated um, and loyal supporters and players. We are absolutely beside ourselves with grief and sadness to lose such a, um, a gorgeous individual who gave everything back that she had. A brilliant person all around and a brilliant teacher. She didn't keep all those super talents that she had to herself. She gave all of them back to the parish, to all the smaller kids all the kids in our club who came up through the ranks, to lose a um, a, a, a friend, a neighbour at that age is, is, is truly devastating. As well as playing camogie, Ashling Murphy was an accomplished fiddle player who taught local children. And on Thursday's drive time, John Cook was on the Grand Canal Way and spoke to one of her pupils, 11-year-old Anna, who was there with her mother. It was important for Anna to understand the process of what has happened and to be able to grieve. Um, Ashling's been a significant person in her life over the last three years and during COVID she continued her lessons through Zoom. She was always a happy, bubbly person mm-hmm. um, and starting out on her, her teaching career and it's just a life cut short. We left a note for her and we left we left some some flowers for her. We left really bright ones because she was always so nice and she loved bright 
colors. <laughs> she was always so kind to us at fiddle lesson. She taught you the fiddle? Yeah, for three years. A good teacher? A brilliant one. And John spoke to more people from the locality who had come to the Grand Canal to pay their respects. She was the kindest girl you'd ever meet. She was always in, you know, she was always seemed to be in great form, real, like, always looking out for everyone, never in, never, you'd never see her in a day, she'd be in bad humour, you know. Uh-huh. She was the kind, honestly, the kindest soul, one of the nicest people I've ever met, like. You know, you hear about these things happen, but you don't, you don't think it ever happened to so close to home, and as I said, to one of our own friends as well. You're bringing flowers here to the scene yourself uh, for Ashling. Did you know her? I, I didn't know her personally. I knew her. Um, I would walk down here most days and I would, I would see her and I would know her. And I know she's um, a school teacher and I know people in her class and stuff. So You'd have seen her running in the area. Yeah. yeah, lovely girl. Always had a big smile and um, always very polite. Yeah, I was here yesterday until around half 12. It was so beautiful yesterday here. And so I come down and I want my dog down here, but it's, it's horrible. Yeah, it is. It's, it's horrible. Hard to know what to say, I know. There's no words, I don't think, for... Well, she was too much going for a jog. Like, it's... There's no words. From Thursday's drive time. And as local people in the area tried to come to terms with what had happened, broader questions began to be asked about gender-based violence and how, whether it's going for a walk or a run or just getting in the door safely, life can be a very different experience if you're a woman. On Thursday's Liveline, Katie spoke to Aoife. Talk to me about the things that you and your friends do to feel safe and to Um, ensure each other are safe. Yeah, so for instance, I went out for a couple of drinks last night with a friend I haven't seen in years and she said, you know, the most casual thing in the world, text me when you get in. I texted her and said, that's me home safe. You take photos uh, of the taxi plate. You've got keys between your fingers when you're walking home. You'll put your headphones on, but you don't put any music on. If there's a man walking behind you on a dark street, you cross the street to the other side of the street because you don't want them walking behind you. I tuck my hair into my coat. I put my hood up. I feel like having blonde hair is enough. <laughs> I just be totally unsafe walking at night. And it's not even at night. I cycle in Dublin, I've been stopped at a traffic light and I fell, put his hand out and just touched the side of my face at a red light out of a van. There is nowhere that we are safe, whether it's in a nightclub or in a taxi or out for a cycle or like harassing us out for a run. There is nowhere we are safe. Just stop, Aoife, you're saying you were stopped at traffic lights in the middle of the day? Yeah, in the middle of the day on the coast road in Dublin and I was on my bike and I was Stopped at a traffic light and I fell in the passenger side of a van, put his hand out and just touched my hair and the side of my face. And said anything or...? Just laughing. Just laughing, just touching me because he could touch me. This is this was in lockdown. This is recently. And it's not even something that I even thought to talk about because it doesn't even register because it's just another thing that woman has to put up with and I just thought about it as another thing that I have to put up with. Neve is a runner and she told Katie about one particularly frightening incident. Take yeah, me back to that so, time in the woods in Waterford. Yeah, so this was when I was back in college and I was at home and went for a run in my local woods 
and uh, I was running along and near enough to the end of my run, so, you know, starting to get a bit tired and um, heard somebody behind me and kind of just looked back and, and then almost instantly took a second look because I, I realised that it wasn't just your, your standard runner, that he, was, he wasn't wearing running gear um, and I realised that he wasn't running, he was chasing me. Um, I can still picture what he was wearing. He was wearing a suede jacket and boots and jeans and he was chasing me. And mm. I, you know, obviously panicked and, and started going faster and, and I've competed for Ireland in my day. But, you know, I'm no match for, you know, a, a young fit man either at the same time. And he was gaining on me and I was just very lucky in that there was a, a turn just up ahead and it was a crossroads. And I just thought to myself, OK, um, so I just you know, ran as hard as I could for that corner and then just veered off and went straight into the bushes. I thought it was the last thing he'd expect and he would know where to find me. So veered off and crouched down in, in the ferns and, you know, terrified, trying to control my breathing, trying to stay as quiet as I could. And he came around that corner and realised what I did and I'll never forget the smile on his face. You know, he just almost relished the fact that I'd, you know, challenged him or, you know, that... He knew what I'd done, you know, but didn't know where to find me and, you know, started searching for me and um, walked up one path, walked down another path um, you know, kind of looked around behind a few trees. Um, you must there, have been you know, absolutely terrified. Petrified, absolutely petrified, you know, frozen solid, just, you know, um, I could probably still smell the ferns, you know, um, just when I think about it and... You know, just thinking, it, it felt like hours. I mean, it was probably only minutes. It felt like hours, but um, eventually he walked away. Thankfully, um, he wasn't there when I when I eventually ran home. And fellow runner Rachel got in touch. And tell me, Rachel, when you are out running now, because you you obviously are a very regular runner, and you say you 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 have also had this this uh, experience of strangers shouting at you, making comments. Oh God, yeah. Now, I run at the earphones in, which, I'm, I'm, she's very crazy. I'm sure there are people who are listening to this who are saying, I do terribly dangerous things running at night and running with earphones in. But the fact of the matter is that if I want to run, that's when I have to do it. And I think I should be allowed to do that. But yeah, no, I've been out at night and I've had people com- make comments. Sorry, I'm sorry, I've been out in the day and you, I've had people make comments to me. I've had lads shout out windows of vans. I've had men in cars shout out things, swerve their cars towards you in order to give you a fright these things happen regularly. You know, you run along and somebody kind of comes up too close to you and you end up spending half the rest of the run looking behind your shoulder to make sure they're not there. Or when you're doubling back on yourself or finishing your loop, you change your loop slightly just to make sure that they're not still there. And I think there'll be plenty, I think there will be so many women and girls who are listening to this that are saying, well, that's, I've exactly done that on numerous occasions. Fortunately for them, men do not have to think about this like that. Like I wear a high vis, I wear a torch on my head and in theory those are because of traffic but for a very long time all that the reason I've worn those is because I always think well at least if I got attacked then somebody might see me from the road or like I'll catch a car's light and somebody will see me that way and in the same way I wear a Fitbit when I run and I have a separate app on my phone that tracks my runs and is GPS and like my mother and I have had conversations about, well, if something happens to you, there'll be a GPS record of where you were if you don't come home. Even though it shouldn't be on women or girls to adjust their behaviour, but subconsciously people will again. I think that's what's frustrating is that we can talk about what we do or we can talk about how we protect ourselves or we can talk about how 
you know, collective behaviour of men should change or collective responsibility should be taken in order for people to feel safe using their city, their country, their local amenities. We talk about how beautiful Ireland is. We have these the Great Western Greenway. We have these greenways for people to use. But sure, if you don't feel safe using them or you're constantly on edge using them, then what's the point? Rachel with Katie on Thursday's Live Line. Earlier that day, Claire had spoken to Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid. The reality is that women uh, don't feel safe uh, often in any public place, whether it is in broad daylight, in crowded spaces, let alone in kind of those kind of stereotypical darkened alley scenarios. And, and that experience, which which goes almost uh, appallingly from cradle to grave in that sense of where men may feel safe and comfortable in certain environments when you look at it through the lens of uh, a women's experience, all of those kind of um, internalised uh, fears do manifest themselves from everything to, you know, uh, you know that, that, that thing where women would talk about, you know, holding their keys in their hands if they're walking on their own. Mm-hmm. And, and what we really want to emphasise is that we can't uh, have another tragic incident where we don't grasp the momentum behind this. We can't look at what women can do to stay safe. We can't look at the places where uh, these appalling acts are perpetrated because they actually are irrelevant. What we need to focus on are the behaviours and attitudes, even from the most casual sexism, which do accumulate, and there is strong research to show this, in the most egregious forms of male violence against women. We can't... um, you know, uh, squander the, the the huge potential that these women have lost uh, by by not making sure that we make our societies, our communities safer. And Benson pointed out that making our societies safer involves change, change for everyone. Any efforts to combat this, really, you know, we, we talk about we need to work men and women as allies in this. Uh, there can be a defensiveness on the part of some men sometimes when things like this happen. I, think, I, I say we need to set that aside and go, look, the vast majority of violence against both men and women is perpetrated by men. With women, there is a very distinct uh, gendered stereotype that feeds into that. So, of course, not all men, but we really need to work from, from the very earliest stages with our boys, with our girls, around principles of equality, of mutuality, because that's the only way we're actually going to get rid of, as you say, that culture of fear. And how do you respond to that? Because you know people right now will be saying not all men, but it is some men. Is that how you respond? I, I, I'd be honest, I, I really think that that is, it, it's, it's, it's sidestepping the issue overwhelmingly because, of course, not all men. But the fact is, you know, and, and we talk about the whole spectrum of violence against women, we've domestic violence, we've sexual abuse, we've prostitution, we've trafficking, we've FGM. You know, there's an enormous spectrum which is heavily gendered and it is entirely wrapped up in what, what are effectively these kind of old patriarchal stereotypes. And we just have to acknowledge that that is the, that is the society and this is not unique to Ireland. This is a, a completely global phenomenon. A gender equal society is one that is better for men and women alike and which also will surely contribute to the reduction of uh, male violence against men because it is, you know, allowing that kind of a much more positive uh, representation of masculinity, one that's not predicated on, you know, old tired stereotypes which unfortunately still prevail. CEO of Women's Aid, Sarah Benson with Claire on Thursday. And vigils were held around the country to remember Ashling Murphy and to shine a light on the issue of violence against women. For Morning Ireland, Pat McGrath attended one such vigil in Galway, 
organised by Eve McDowell. We just felt we had to do something um, just to honour um, the too short-lived life of Ashleen's and to show our respects. And yeah, it was great to see everyone coming out and showing that solidarity and just saying that enough is enough um, and that we shouldn't have to be doing this so often. The situation is just horrible and I feel I feel quite close to it as well just because being a female growing up from a very young age it's harassment and stalking and abuse it's it's actually more common than you think and so we all feel for this woman um, strongly like we all feel it we felt I felt it the second I saw it in the headline today and you know all the happiness for the new year just washed away so I just wanted to pay my respects to the victim and even though I didn't know her I feel like I knew her just a little bit because of the bond we have as females. Well we're hoping that this will make people stop and say this is enough Um, you know being an activist when we see stuff like this happen you feel as though you've failed so I think it's time now for everyone to come together everyone needs to be activists and women can't do anything else like we're tired we've done everything we can do we need to start looking at other options like because what's, what's the way that we've been trying to tackle male violence against women hasn't been working so I think time's up and we really just need to start looking at other options. We need national effort from politicians and the Gardaí. We all need to be active bystanders calling out behaviour that's not acceptable. We're completely crossing a boundary which leads to the next boundary and the next boundary. Like when does it stop? From Morning Ireland. Ashling Murphy was a fiddle player and this is a recording of her playing. <laughs> in a bit. Welcome back. Now, a wee teaser for you. What do Hollywood actor Humphrey Bogart, Sex and the City star Sarah Jessica Parker and half the US presidents have in common? Uh, no clue. They are all alleged descendants of the 1692 Salem witch trials, in which an infamous outbreak of religious hysteria resulted in 19 early settlers hanged and one pressed to death. Gruesome. That is Alice Hutton for World Report. And Alice is in Salem, Massachusetts, where there's quite the booming business of wannabe witches or Wiccans using DNA and other genealogy mapping techniques to establish their links to witches of old. An estimated 15 million Americans could claim a connection to the 330-year-old tragedy, according to the New England Historic Genealogical Society. For hundreds of years, it was a source of shame, with people changing their names. But recently, those descended from accused witches are claiming the connection with pride. So much so, they are becoming known, alongside being descended from a president or the Mayflower, as celebrity ancestors. Essentially, icons of early American history in a country founded largely on immigrants whose stories were often question marks. Ironically, Europe executed thousands more witches than America, but due to largely piecemeal record-keeping until the 19th century, compared with fastidious New England records since the 1620s, 
and an unusual number of first-hand accounts of the trials, more Americans can prove lineage. But what's behind this sudden burst in popularity? Some academics suggest the revival is a byproduct of far-right attacks on women's rights, with many of the female victims known as being unusually outspoken or independent for the time. Witch talk on TikTok also reportedly helped inspire the popularity of modern witches or Wiccans. And let us not forget Willow from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But is there an element of revisionism at play here? It's hard not to wonder what the original victims, most of whom were Christians who went to their deaths rather than admit to witchcraft, would think of their descendants calling them witches today. They'd be horrified, said Richard Trask, the archivist for the town of Danvers, the original Salem village. He's related to several victims and points out that witchcraft in the 17th century wasn't the Disney version of today, but so vile a crime it's closer to being accused of paedophilia. He blamed decades of tourism, including the 2005 unveiling of a statue of Samantha from 1960's sitcom Bewitched for leading to social amnesia about the tragedy and the confusion that the victims believed they were witches, citing modern Wiccans holding what he called disrespectful ceremonies at memorials. For many descendants, however, it doesn't matter so long as the victims aren't forgotten. Alice Hutton for World Report. And back again this week to a story that just will not go away. Now, and Damien O'Mara, we started the week talking about Novak Djokovic. Here we are on Friday. I can't keep up. What's happened this morning? And I suspect we could be chatting about him again on Monday if we're here. Um, as we've been hearing across the programme, tennis world number one and defending Australian Open champion Novak Djokovic has had his Australian visa cancelled for a second time. Shortly before seven o'clock this morning, it was announced that the Immigration Minister Alex Hawke had used his powers to cancel the visa, quoting health and good order grounds, also saying that it was in the public interest to do so. Djokovic had initially been awarded... Thank you, Gavin. It is indeed hard to keep up. Claire spoke to ABC Sports journalist in Melbourne, Catherine Murphy. What has been the overall public reaction, though, to this decision from the Minister? It's been a crazy week, Claire. The public reaction keeps changing. So at the start of the week, when we saw him being detained, you know, there was a lot of anger about that initial and now infamous medical exemption that he was granted. A lot of anger that he would be allowed to come into the country unvaccinated. Then when he was detained, there was a lot of sympathy for him. Then when it was revealed, he had that positive PCR test that he claims to have got, but he went on to hang out at an event and meet a journalist and do a photo shoot. Public opinion swayed again. I would say the overwhelming feeling in Melbourne this evening, Claire, and this decision only came out at 6pm on a Friday. You know what that's like in a newsroom. Mm -hmm. They certainly left it late, right up to everyone's deadline. But among the general public, the feeling now is this is just embarrassing. This is a debacle. I think that's how the majority of Australians view this. Oh, it's something... Also on the line, Australian-based Lars Kiss, who was a former coach of Novak Djokovic. This has put a stain on 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 our country here. Uh, to I don't know what sort of result will clean this up. I, I I'm I'm embarrassed. Look, I'm 
half Serbian, half Croatian by this, uh, half Hungarian by descent, and Australian citizen. I live here. I love this country. Um, and but this is just uh, uh, unspeakable. What's going on? Um, the fact that uh, Minister Hawke uh, made this decision at just after 6 p.m. local time. Uh, the time frame, as the lawyers have said, is just uh, yeah. I mean, he's waited for the draw. He's waited for now. You know, now we're going to wait to see the schedules made. It's like deliberately trying to. Uh, make everyone uncomfortable you know mm. we're talking about international tennis federation the you know tennis australian and uh, organizers of the australian open will have some serious answers to give to itf it's just yeah i, I mean i can rave about this <laughs> all eyes now on sunday's decision on mooney goes wild waders were the bird du jour and in particular oyster catchers Eric Dempsey was in blame the parents mode. They have a very long orange beak. And if you're going to capture and break into a mollusk, there's two ways of doing it. The first one is you get along the edge and you prise it open. So you're a prizer. The other way of doing it is to, to smash it open with, uh, with the tip of your beak. And if you look at oyster catchers, you will see some of them have really fine tips to their beaks. So, so they're prizers. But the ones that use their beak to smash open the shell, they have a blunt tip to the beak because the tip of the beak keeps getting broken. They're smashers. And apparently, if your parents are smashers, you will grow to be a smasher. And if your parents are prizers, you will grow to be a prizer. But I often do wonder, and I've said it so many times, I wonder what happens if your mother's a smasher and your father's a prizer. Uh, are these the ones that are out feeding in the football pitches looking for earthworms because they're not quite sure how to crack open a shell? They are very confused oyster catchers out there. And who would want that? But if the oyster catcher was not an efficient feeder, other birds were lurking. Here's Jim Wilson. One, one interesting thing when you mentioned the oyster catcher is a, a fascinating concept called handling time. And what it was is, how long does it take me to get that food into my stomach? And if the handling time gets too long, too much energy is being expended, not worth the effort. Too small, I've got to spend a whole pile of time picking up these small little, these small little shellfish. So they eventually find the right size uh, shellfish for them. And with the oyster catcher, they also found pulling up worms that the handling time is when a bird called a black-headed gull comes along and just casually stands close to the oyster catcher and it waits for it to pull up a worm that is just too big or proving too difficult and they fly in and they grab and steal the worm away. So the black-headed gull has learned, I, I don't need to go hunting for these worms. I can let an oyster catcher, probably a young bird, who's having trouble getting that worm into its stomach fast enough before something else catches it or robs it. And I'll come along and I'll grab it off it. So when, when, when you realise this sort of detail, you, 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 you really have to stand in awe at the way the whole ecosystem of the mudflat works and that the fact that everything locks in together like a jigsaw and, and they all move as one and nobody upsets anybody else overall and they all manage to eke out a, a living and get three meals a day out of it. It's, it's fantastic. From Mooney Goes Wild.
and appreciation of the ecosystem and frankly wasting not so much as a crumb. Drawing the line at the bread actually moving but not much before is Cormac on drive time. Now this was prompted by UK supermarket Morrisons who were eschewing use-by dates on its own brand milk. Instead they were advocating the sniff test. Turns out Cormac was well ahead of them on this one. As a simple rule I'm really wary of, of meat and fish and eggs but everything else even if there's mould on it I'll eat it. <laughs> Am I wrong? Well, the, the, Wait, the, the, you, sorry, can I just clarify? Do you at least cut the mould off? Sometimes, yeah. But I have had, uh, and I know I'm talking to a, a culinary arts expert here, but I have had a sandwich with mouldy bread still on and what? hardened cheddar cheese with a little bit of mould off. Now I cut the corner off the cheese and uh, down the hatch. Mould? Sure, that's only cheese on cheese. Well, what's a lecturer in culinary arts and chair of the Masters in Gastronomy and Food Studies at Technological University Dublin, in itself a mouthful of a title, Dr Morcheen McInumera and Sarah. Yo, we all used to be associated with a certain amount of dirt, you know what I mean? This stuff would fall on the ground, you'd pick it up, whatever, you know, and that would harden you and you'd get you'd get used to it and but all that sort of stuff. Hold on, Morshin, there's a difference between, you know, getting a bit dirty and eating a mouldy sandwich on purpose. I know, of course. I'm now, not, it, I'm not hang forget, on, let I'm me clarify forget, one thing. Yeah, it, follow, it was uh, rotten. <laughs> we're looking here at Cormac's particular sort of tradition here and history you know what I mean and we're not we're not saying now that the good people of Ireland all should go around eating mouldy sandwiches I suppose what I'm trying to explain why he's still standing there in front of you and why he's not down in the A&E you know what I mean he's a hard institution you could say you know what I mean but to be honest with you I'm only saying that people like Sarah are maybe a little bit too soft and too posh I think but uh, used to har- I, I'll put it this way Look, I, I won't the, put the a, snobbery uh, of me not eating gold <laughs> 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 uh, I give up I give up I think really really what is, what is down to say now is that if you see if you are looking at something and you see it's out of date you know, look at it think about the environment alright think about sustainability and actually ask yourself a question says you know does this really need to be thrown out or actually okay. is this okay to be eaten for another day or two and if it is you know, it, it, it's it's you're you're giving respect to the cow, you're giving respect to the farmer, you're giving respect to the land by actually consuming. Food. Okay, just very quickly. Drive time. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Arena, a chat about season three of Afterlife, which returned to Netflix yesterday. It features Tony, who's struggling to find any meaning in life after the death of his wife. And while there's much sadness in the series, when Tony is written and played by Ricky Gervais, you might be forgiven for being somewhat surprised at the tenderness of his portrayal. And with Ricky Gervais at the end of the line, this is how Sean Rocks so delicately put it. Obviously, people knowing you from the office, from extras, from your stand-up routines, you know, you take no prisoners along the way. But we see a very soft side in the character of Tony and obviously anything that isn't Tony must be coming from some part of you. Has that soft side been bursting to get out for years and years and years? Or- well, I think it's always I think it's always been there. And um, uh, also, uh, you know, all the characters have got a bit of me in them. You can't just have one that's you, that's played by you, and everyone else is this... You know, you have to make it fair. You have to argue with yourself when you're when you're writing it. And uh, sometimes I agree with the things Tony says, and sometimes I don't. And sometimes I agree with the 
person he's arguing with, you know, because you've, you've sort of written both sides. And I, I think it's always been there. There's pathos in the office when Brent begs for his job back and in extras when he, said, he says sorry to Maggie. Derek was more explicitly um, uh, dramatic. Mm. And, uh, 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 so it's always been there. But I think this is just about such a big subject that everyone identifies with. Everyone's grieving. Everyone's gone through summer. So it, it just it just seems um, much more like he's, you know, is wearing his heart on his sleeve. And also, um, is this the first character I've played that's grieving? And so, of course, he cries more. Yeah. Of course, he's more angry. Of course, he's more pathetic in many ways because he's, he's devastated. He's hurt. He's wounded. He doesn't know what to do. You can't. You can't choose your emotions. He doesn't know what to do. He tries everything. He tries anger, insults, drink, you know, um, and none of it really works And uh, until season three where, you know, he just, no spoilers, but he discovers the only thing that can even keep him alive. And, and that's yeah. sort of helped others. Now, before we all dissolve into a ball of mush, this is still the same man who puts pranks and frankly cringe to such excruciatingly comic effect. On the line with Ricky was Tom Basden, who plays Matt, Tony's brother-in-law and boss in the series. But for Ricky Gervais, this just means an excuse to have him fall over again and again and again. How how do you manage when Ricky Gervais is laughing into your face as you have to remain terribly serious? <laughs> I mean... With with mixed success, I guess. Is the answer to that. I mean, it sort of depends. Like there, there'll be a scene that we did when uh, in this series where Ricky is is letting off an air horn in my face, my favourite, and and I'm um, falling onto loads of boxes and it, severely injuring myself. And uh, it's horrific. made it funnier. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, in that context, he can corpse all he likes because that's what's what Tony is doing. <laughs> yeah, and that was that was a, a, a really happy accident because when I, when we first did it and he fell. It was that's the take that's in the series. We got it right. No, you used the first one. Yeah, yeah. But then I did another ten for my own amusement and got it more and more dangerous. And, yeah. and I was laughing. I was laughing so much that every time he had to fall, and we were getting it higher, and we were putting more boxes. <laughs> and it was just, it was yeah. just the funniest thing because it's visceral. There's no clever lines. There's no, there's no plot. It's just one bloke making another bloke fall over. There's nothing <laughs> funnier than that. There's one bit where I'm laughing and then uh, uh, he really did fall and hurt his elbow. And he got up and said, I've hurt my elbow on the dado rail. And I <laughs> laughed again. Because it was just a funny thing to say. Just like it's just this 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 guy. He plays a pathetic dork really well, well don't you? You know, a, a lanky not pathetic. In this show, I know, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ricky Gervais on Arena. Now, if you really want to let Rip head down to the sea and perhaps replicate the roaring of Julie Scott. She's a vocal coach based in The Hague with Screech. On the beach. So and talk us through it then. There's you and you know, what, 20, 30 other people. So what happens next? Well, then when I turn up, um, I do some uh, voice expression exercises with them because, again, quite a few people are not used to using their voice like that and they have to overcome their shyness. So that's what I help them with. And we have, we have a lot of fun as well. So it's like fun and games in the beginning. And then we all stand in a row um, towards the sea right. and we're quiet for a minute. And it's, it's like, a, um, yeah, like a small moment of meditation. 
And then I count to three and we scream. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and just let, let it all go and let off steam. And then after that, and that's actually my favourite part, we're quiet again for about a minute. And it's just wonderful because you just feel completely energised and um, and the silence after after all that noise is just wonderful. And not that it necessarily makes a difference, but this is their position. You're you're all face in a line facing the sea. Um, uh, the north, what, what, that, what sea is that? Is it the the, the North Sea? Is it or where, what are you? Where are you facing there? You're in Holland, facing out the sea. I don't know what sea it is. But you, you, oh, it's it's the North Sea. No. We're we're facing we're facing England. Right, yeah. So, <laughs> so we're the, screaming. The north, right, right, you're screaming at England. <laughs> Yeah. And, and there's all shapes and sizes, men and women, all ages, and you just start. Yes. I'm, I'm, is it? It's like is it? Is it sort of? I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back from the microphone in case I, I ruin things here. But it's like a. Ah! <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it that wonderful? Oh, you can join in. Oh, is you that? can join in any time. Yes, is you're a the, wonderful screamer. Yes, is it that though? Is it a high pitched thing? Is it? Or, well, no, it's, I think it's more low. Right. Okay. Yes. Huh. <laughs> Do you want to give it a try? <laughs> oh, I can't. I can't. And that was the sound of a silent scream. And who knows what sound they are making across the water. A roar of rage, perhaps. This week saw Prime Minister Boris Johnson apologising profusely for lockdown parties, or rather, not a party, a work event. It was BYOB, after all. I believed implicitly that this was a work event. But Mr Speaker... With hindsight, I should have sent everyone back inside. I should have found some other way to thank them. And I should have recognised that even if it could be said technically to fall within the guidance, there would be millions and millions of people who simply would not see it that way. Well, there we have it. After months of deceit and deception, the pathetic spectacle of a man who's run out of road. His defence, his defence, that he didn't realise he was at a party. (laughs) It is so ridiculous that it's actually offensive to the British public. He's finally been forced to admit what everyone knew, that when the whole country was locked down, he was hosting boozy parties in Downing Street. Is he now going to do the decent thing and resign? Labour's Keir Starmer there. But might Boris yet again manage to buffoon his way out of it? On drive time, Cormac put this to John Rental, chief political commentator at the London Independent. But it's also about water under the bridge and how much time elapses and other items come on the agenda. And I don't want to paint myself like a a cynical uh, Tory, but if I was in Boris Johnson's camp and I I knew that the Grey investigation was um, about to conclude, I would say, by the way, we have some more information for you. And in (laughs) in would come the lorry loads of information. Yeah, no. I mean, I think that's. I think that's right. I mean, the instinct of uh, of of the Conservatives, and the instinct of the Prime Minister, must be to uh, to continue to be as apologetic as he can be, and as, as uh, and as contrite as he can as he can manage. He's not very good at it. It must be said. I mean, it was written all over his face today that he did not like. Uh, eating humble pie at all, mm-hmm. uh, but he was able to keep it up for, for for forty-five minutes, which is a very long time. 
um, and uh, you know play it long. I mean, that's obviously the you know the, the thing. He he needs to wait for uh, world events to to intervene and distract people from uh, from his own problems. And all of that before Number 10's apology to the Queen for more parties on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral. Oh my. Now, seven months are rolling over, but tonight be the night. The National Lottery has received regulatory approval for a will-be-one draw this evening, capped at €19 million. And while theoretically you might win statistically... Hmm. Well, Dr. Brian Nolan is Associate Professor at the School of Mathematical Sciences at Dublin City University. He took out the abacus and this question finally settled. Brian, a listener has a question for you. Connor has asked, can your lotto guests settle a debate amongst my friends? Is the combination of one, two, three, four, five, six as likely to come up as any other combination? Yes, it is. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. Yeah. In some sense, there's. I mean, there's a few different ways to look at this. In some sense, the numbers on the numbers in and of themselves don't mean anything. Okay, they're just random squiggles that the national lottery has placed on the balls to distinguish the forty-seven different balls and to give us a way of identifying. Uh, you know, matching up the six that were drawn out of the drum with the six random squiggles that you put down on the ticket when you bought it. <laughs> the one to six has this psychological draw, um, but it doesn't have any meaning that's intrinsic to the game. So so the answer is a, a short yes. Right. I take it then you don't have a lucky number, do you, Brian? No, I don't. <laughs> no, no. 19 million, there's a lucky number. Yeah. Ah, sure they're all lucky numbers from the Claire Byrne Show. Well, we're almost at a finish. But let's end with something beautiful. Sunday Miscellany brought us a celebration of the playwright Brian Freel and this poem from Vincent Woods. Bees honour their keeper for Brian Freel. Settling on his head, five bees, soft as air, light as a soul ascending, sweeten the day, hive the night with colour. Yellow gold, a burst of pure white honey smearing his skin like Adam with the first apple. That is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.